Precautionary note. This episode contains descriptions of self-harm. Listener discretion is advised. December 1975. Marina Abramovich sits at a table in the center of De Appel Gallery in Amsterdam. The small table is covered with a white cloth. In front of her is a jar of honey, a bottle of red wine, and a wine glass. Marina is 29 years old at this time. She sits naked with her black hair pulled back in a bun. A Dutch TV show called Bildsprak has invited her to this Amsterdam gallery to perform a new piece she calls Thomas Lips. The setup of this piece includes a kitchen table, white tablecloth, a jar of honey, a bottle of red wine, a wine glass, a razor blade, a whip, a large cross of ice on the floor, and a suspended heater. The audience is present, the scene is set, and the cameras are rolling. Marina opens the jar of honey. She begins to eat it, slowly. One detail the audience doesn't know. Marina hates honey. She's hated it since she was a child. But she's written very specific instructions for this piece. The rules for Thomas Lips dictate that she slowly eat one kilogram of honey. That's roughly two pounds. Marina never breaks the rules of a piece. This is part of her absolutist discipline. One which was reinforced in her through her mother's strict parenting when growing up. After a few minutes, she finishes the jar and uncorks the red wine. She pours it into the wine glass. Another written rule of the piece, Thomas Lips, slowly drink one liter of red wine out of a crystal glass. Marina sips the wine thoughtfully. No one can guess what is going through her thoughts. Maybe nothing but the act of performing, or perhaps it's private scenes from her childhood. As she holds the crystal glass in her hand, it is no longer a wine glass. It is a symbol. In a performance, everything becomes a symbol. A table is not a table. A glass is not a glass. But what we see, and what Marina sees, are based on completely different perspectives. To us, the wine-filled glass may be a symbol of pleasure, intoxication, of the desire to consume and experience life, or the desire to escape it. But to the artist, although it may mean those things, it can also hold a residual echo of something else. When Marina was 17, her mother and father celebrated their anniversary by throwing a party. 18 years of marriage. After everyone left, young Marina was in the kitchen, and her father, Voyo, said to her, let's wash the champagne glasses. You dry. This was something out of character for him, as he rarely ever cleaned the kitchen. Marina agreed. She grabbed a towel and stood next to him. Within seconds, her father accidentally broke the first glass, the pieces scattering on the floor. At that moment, Danitza, Marina's mother, entered the kitchen. Seeing the broken glass, she exploded. All of the anger and bitterness she had been bottling up during their anniversary party now had a target to vent on. Danitza yelled about it all, his clumsiness, the disaster their marriage had become, the embarrassment she felt, and how many women Voyo had slept with. 17-year-old Marina stood between them with the towel still in her hand. Her father said nothing, standing motionless, absorbing countless minutes of Danitza's screaming. There was a pause. Voyo finally spoke. Are you finished? She said, yes. He grabbed all the champagne glasses, one by one, and smashed all 11 on the floor. He then said, I cannot hear this 11 more times. And he left the house. Marina sits at the white kitchen table. She finishes the last sip of the liter of wine. As she holds the empty wine glass, her right forearm tenses and breaks the glass in her hand. The broken pieces scatter on the table, mixed with spatters of Bordeaux. She rises from her seat, grabs a small razor blade, and proceeds to a position in front of the table. Marina brings the razor blade over her lower abdomen and pauses a moment. To the audience, this pause may be perceived as a moment to gather herself before she proceeds, but to Marina, it may mean something else. This pause before the first cut may be her body reliving memories, another residual echo like the one with the wine glass. In her autobiography, Marina writes, One of my biggest fears has always been of blood, my own blood. When I was small, when my mother and her sister slapped me, I got blue bruises all over. My nose would bleed constantly. Then, when I lost my first baby tooth, 
The bleeding didn't stop for three months. I had to sleep sitting up in bed so I wouldn't choke. Finally, my parents took me to the doctors to see what was wrong with me, and they found out I had a blood disorder. At first, they thought it was leukemia. My mother and father put me in the hospital. I was there for almost a year. I was six. This was the happiest time of my childhood. Everybody in my family was nice to me. They brought me good presents for a change. Everybody in the hospital was kind to me. It was paradise. The doctors continued to do tests, and they discovered that what I had wasn't leukemia, but something more mysterious, maybe some kind of psychosomatic reaction to my mother's and aunt's physical abuse. I was given all kinds of treatments. Then I went back home, and the slapping and beatings continued, maybe a little less frequently than before. I was expected to endure this punishment without complaint. I think that, in a certain way, my mother was training me to be a soldier like her. She might have been an ambivalent communist, but she was a tough one. True communists had walk-through-walls determination, Spartan determination. In an interview I did with Danitsa, later in her life, she said, as for pain, nobody has, and nobody ever will hear me scream. At the dentist's office, she insisted on not being given anesthesia when she had a tooth pulled. I learned my self-discipline from her, and I was always afraid of her." Unquote. Another clue comes later in her writing. I got my first period at 12, and it lasted more than 10 days. Lots of bleeding. The blood kept coming, just this red liquid seeping out of my body and never stopping. With my childhood memory of uncontrollable bleeding and hospitalization, I thought I was dying. It was the maid, Mara, rather than my mother, who explained to me what menstruation was. Mara was a kind, round woman with a big bosom and full lips, and when she so warmly took me in her arms to tell me what was happening with my body, I suddenly had the strange urge to kiss her on the mouth. The kiss didn't quite happen. A very confusing moment, and the urge didn't return. But my body was filled with confusing feelings. This too was when I began to masturbate often, and always with deep feelings of shame." Unquote. Now Marino, with the razor blade still in her right hand, brings it down and cuts a diagonal line upward from her lower abdomen and past her belly button. She cuts another line, forming a point from the first one, tracing a V-shape across the surface of her skin. It's not like in the movies. The blood appears in a delayed reaction, and then three more straight lines, all meeting at points, until the cuts form an inverted five-pointed star. It's a powerful and unsettling image. The audience watching may be interpreting it as an upside-down communist star or an inverted pentagram. Later in her career, Marina is fond of saying, the difference between performance art and theater is that in performance art, the blood is real. In theater, the blood is ketchup. Marina's blood slowly trails downward between her legs. She is kneeling now. Placing the razor blade aside, she picks up a leather whip. Marina begins whipping herself. Minutes pass. The whip leaves red welts on her back. The instructions of Thomas Lips say, I violently whip myself until I no longer feel any pain. Marina writes this about her first performance of Thomas Lips. As I whipped myself, my blood flew everywhere. The pain was excruciating at first, and then it vanished. The pain was like a wall I had walked through and come out on the other side. She finally puts the whip down and stands up, walking over to two large rows of ice blocks, which form a cross on the floor. Marina lays her back on the ice blocks, with her arms stretched outward on the ice cross. Even here, the perceived salve of the ice for her wounds comes with a twist. Directly above her stomach is a heater, which has been suspended from the ceiling. It is pointing at the inverted star on her stomach, causing it to bleed further. And the ice itself poses another danger, if left in direct contact with skin for more than 20 minutes, ice can cause tissue damage and even frostbite. The instructions for Thomas Lips state, I remain on the ice cross for 30 minutes until the public interrupts the piece 
by removing the ice blocks from underneath me. Around the half-hour mark, audience members enter the performance space and lift Marina from the ice, covering her with their coats. It's curious to note that after the sadistic interactions of the audience in Rhythm Zero, here, in Thomas Lips, Marina seems to place a deliberate responsibility on the audience to save her. In this way, many of Marina's performances challenge the traditional art expectations of a passive audience. If you are present for the performance, you are a part of the performance. What this piece also teaches us is, an artist's work will always contain within its DNA the life and memories of the artist themselves. Any great artwork is always a combination of everything an individual has known and experienced until that point in time. In this case, we can see the residual memories in Marina, which likely influence the symbolism of the piece. From the communist star, to her father's glass-breaking argument, and her persistent fear of blood during her childhood. And one more detail, which is not obvious to viewers. Thomas Lips was inspired by an artist whom Marina had a brief romantic fling with while in Austria. The artist's name was Thomas Lips, and she claims there was an androgyny about him which really fascinated her. She was powerfully attracted to him. Knowing these kinds of personal details is not integral to appreciating a work of art, but it does provide us a profound interpretive lens with which to understand how a piece comes into being. Now, Marina's fling, Thomas Lips, was not in the audience for this intensely symbolic display, though another artist was, someone whom she would soon fall in love with, and in whom she would find an artistic equal, Ulai. And that's the subject of this episode, Marina and Ulai. Welcome to Creative Codex. I'm your host, MJ Dorian. This is episode 37, Marina Abramovich, Immaterial, Part 2, Conjunction. If you have not yet listened to Part 1, I suggest you pause this episode and scroll down in your podcast feed to episode 36, Marina Abramovich, Immaterial, Part 1, Life or Death. In that episode, we cover Marina's childhood, her first forays into art, and her controversial rhythm series. On this episode, we will tackle these questions. Who is Ulai? What does Marina and Ulai's 13-year collaboration teach us about creativity and life? And can two intensely creative people work together toward one vision? Let's find out. This is Marina Abramovich, Immaterial, Part 2. Let's begin. Chapter 2. Relation in Space After Marina's performance of Thomas Lips at De Appel Gallery in Amsterdam, she was bruised, covered in welts, and bleeding from her stomach cuts. But she was not alone. After the audience left, a fellow artist named Ulai stayed with her and tended to her wounds as she rested. As Ulai applied antiseptic and bandages, the two artists smiled at each other. Marina had never received this kind of tender care from anyone in her life. They had only met very recently. The owner of the gallery, a woman named V. Smalls, had enlisted Ulai to be Marina's guide while she was in Amsterdam. When Marina had met Ulai at the airport, a few days before the performance, she was surprised to see that he tied his long hair back into a bun the same exact unique way that she did, with a pair of chopsticks. She would soon find out that they had much more in common than their hairstyles. Ulai was in his early 30s, three years older than Marina. He was tall and skinny, and had been a resident artist of Amsterdam for years. His real name was Frank Uwe Lysipen, but he went by his artist name, Ulai. In Amsterdam, he was well known as a Polaroid artist. Between the years 1970 to 1975, Ulai took thousands of Polaroid pictures of himself as well as portraits of others, enough so that he was officially sponsored by Polaroid, the company. 
They would hire him to run tests on new equipment in exchange for a near limitless supply of film and cameras. He was particularly attracted to marginalized people for his subjects, the homeless, transsexuals, and transvestites. He identified with these people, and in many of his thousands of photographs, he explores his own sense of identity by making himself half woman and half man. Ulai would shave just the left side of his face, on which he applied makeup, plucked his eyebrow, and would leave his long flowing hair down to look like a woman, and he would make the right side of his face masculine by letting his beard grow out and not applying any makeup, embodying his masculine features. Ulai was unlike anyone Marina had ever met in her hometown of Belgrade. Their attraction was immediate. After tending to Marina's moons, following the Thomas Lips performance, the gallery owner, Vis Smalls, invited everyone out to a restaurant. Marina writes in her biography. We went out to a Turkish restaurant with Vis and a few other people from the gallery and the TV crew. I felt relaxed and comfortable with everybody. I said how nice it had been that Vis's invitation had arrived on my birthday. Practically the first time I told everybody that anything good had ever happened to me on that day. When is your birthday? Ulai asked. November 30th, I said. That can't be your birthday, he said. That's my birthday. No way, I said. He took out his pocket diary and showed me that the page for November 30th was torn out. I do that every year on my birthday, Ulai said. I just stared at his little book. Because I hated my birthday so much, I would always rip that page out of my date book. Now I took out my pocket diary and opened it. The same page was torn out. Me too, I said. Ulai stared back. That night, we went back to his place, and we stayed in bed for the next ten days. Our intense sexual chemistry was only a beginning. The fact that we shared a birthday was more than coincidence. From the start, we breathed the same air. Our hearts beat as one. We would finish each other's sentences, each knowing exactly what the other had in mind. Even in our sleep, we had conversations in dreams and half-dreams, then woke up and continued them. If I hurt my finger on my left side, he would hurt his finger on the right side. This man was everything I wanted, and I knew he felt the same about me. When Marina went back to Belgrade, her and Ulai would write to each other constantly. They gave each other nicknames. Hers to him was in French, Mon cher chien russe, my dear Russian dog. Apparently to her, Ulai resembled a borzoi, long, lean, and elegant. Ulai's nickname for her was in German, Mine liebe kleine Taufe, my dear little devil. This confounded Marina, as Ulai had no way of knowing that, when she was a child, her mother used to dress her up in a devil costume whenever they went to children's parties. In her autobiography, Walk Through Walls, Marina includes a picture from 1950 which shows all the kids dressed in sailor outfits and princess dresses, and there's little Marina, with horns coming out of her head. She also begins to actively keep a diary at this point. This feels like an important new chapter of her life that she wants to document. You can read these diary entries in a book titled Marina Abramovich Writings, 1960-2014. to in an entry dated December 11th and 12th, 1975, Marina writes, Amsterdam, night, silver light. Ulai hands me a piece of chocolate. I ate it. We walked the streets and smoked for a bit, as if through a dream. We come to a park with a wire fence, construction site lit with neon light reflectors, making the whole scene seem even more unreal. We kissed in Chinatown. Soon it will be Christmas. Many different lights shining through the fog. He is humiliatingly similar to me. Born the same date as me, November 30th. Only he is three years older. Marina and Ulai would meet again at every opportunity they could, when she was invited to Copenhagen to perform a new piece titled Art Must Be Beautiful, Artist Must Be Beautiful. Marina made a point to stop in Amsterdam for a few days after. But eventually, she always had to return back to Belgrade, where she worked, and despite being 29 years old, where she still lived with her mother. At home, Marina would shut herself in her room, making long calls with Ulai, who was still in the Netherlands. He would tape record them, a collection of tapes he no doubt kept among the dozens of Polaroids they had already taken of each other. When the phone bill came, Danitza lost her mind and locked the phone in the cupboard. So the young lovers continued by writing letters. This first year, 
is such an endearing part of their union. It's just these two beautiful weirdos in love. Someone should honestly make a movie about it. In one of her diary entries from this time, Marina writes, He is the first man in my life who I love, and who cares and understands my work. During their long talks and letters, they connected on their shared existential dilemmas, their visions for a new art, their identity struggles, and their shared baggage. Both Ulai and Marina had already been married, Ulai to a woman back in Germany, whom he had a child with, and Marina to a man named Nessa in Belgrade. It was a marriage of convenience without many conveniences. Their attraction to one another had started strong, but neither of them had any money to afford moving into their own place. And so, Marina and Nessa still lived with their respective parents. Nessa wanted to settle down and have children, but Marina was more interested in freedom. Freedom from her mother, freedom from her hometown, and freedom to pursue art without limits. She was intrigued by the art world outside of Yugoslavia, enough so that Marina had the clever idea to make up her own art organization. Its location was a mailbox on the exterior of her mother's apartment. She called it the Center for Amplified Art. Marina would reach out to galleries and museums in every country, from France and Germany to England and the United States. Catalogs and art books would be sent to her for free, with the assumption that they would be used as educational material at the Center for Amplified Art. Of course, they were educational, but only to Marina, and she devoured them all, coming to know the big players in art and the trends of the art world. In Ulai, Marina saw the potential of this outer world, the possibility to finally leave everything behind and make her own destiny. But in Ulai, she also saw someone who could truly understand her, because his emotional wounds rivaled her own. Cautionary note, the next section contains a mention of sexual assault. If you wish to avoid listening, skip ahead by 90 seconds. Marina writes in her autobiography, If my childhood had been materially comfortable but emotionally desolate, Ulai's early years had been even harder. He was born in Salingen, in the middle of the war. Soon afterward, as Hitler desperately mobilized thousands of older men and young boys, Ulai's father, who was over 50 already, was drafted and sent to fight in the Nazi siege of Stalingrad. It would be a long time before he returned. In the meantime, the Allies began to win the war on the Western Front, and the Russians threatened Germany from the East. In a panic, Ulai's mother took her baby and fled toward what she thought was unoccupied Polish territory. But she wound up in a village full of Russian soldiers, where she was gang-raped. As this was happening, baby Ulai crawled away and fell into a field latrine, a hole full of shit. A Russian, maybe even one of the soldiers who had raped his mother, spotted the partially submerged infant and pulled him out. Ulai's father returned after the German defeat, very sick. Before the war, he'd had a cutlery factory, but an American bomb had destroyed it. After the war, Ulai's parents struggled to make ends meet, and his father never really recovered from his illness. He died when Ulai was 14. Not long before his death, he advised his son never to join the army if he could help it. Ulai took his father's advice to heart. As a young man, he trained as an engineer, then married a German woman with whom he had a son. But when his draft notice came, Ulai fled the country, leaving his wife and child behind, drifting to Amsterdam." Unquote. According to Ulai, in the documentary No Predicted End, he states that he never knew any other family except his mother and father, that his earliest memory is coming out of a bomb shelter to ash and debris, the rest of his family had died in World War II, and that his mother was never present or nurturing during his adolescence. It's possible the traumatic incident Marina describes broke her in some way, mentally and emotionally. In Belgrade, Marina was working as a teacher at the Novi Sad Academy, but in spring, an Italian art magazine published a photograph of her from her performance of Rhythm 4, showing her naked and kneeling over an industrial fan. Rumors spread that the faculty were planning a meeting to discuss what to do with her, with the high likelihood they would vote to fire her. She decided not to give them that satisfaction, and she resigned. This embarrassing situation gave her even more incentive to finally break ties with her hometown. She writes, I'd already decided to leave Belgrade for good. My escape would have to be secret. I couldn't tell Nessa, and my mother mustn't find out or she would come up with some way to pull me back. I bought a one-way second-class train ticket to Amsterdam and stuffed into one bag as much photo documentation of my work as I could fit. If I'd taken any extra clothing, 
Danica would have figured out what I was doing. The next morning, my brother and our friend Tomislav Gotovac, a filmmaker, took me to the train station. I got onto the train to Amsterdam with my second-class ticket and never looked back. And now it's time for a brief intermission. At this point of the episode, in most podcasts, you'd hear an ad for raw meat ice cream or designer bacon made from ethically sourced designers. And that's why I'm going to tell you about today's sponsor for this episode. Ayahuasca toothpaste. One dose will do you. Yes, ayahuasca toothpaste made from a 100% organic blend of ethically sourced ayahuasca straight from Amazon rainforests and driven by diesel-powered trucks to makeshift factories in Mexico, where it is smashed together in a mortar and pestle with off-brand Crest toothpaste, then again put in diesel-powered trucks and brought right to your mouth. Yes, ayahuasca toothpaste. One dose will do ya for when your morning commute needs a micro-boost. It's a completely safe way to spice up your day, probably. Side effects may include nausea, out-of-body experiences, vomiting, disorientation, feelings of euphoria, vomiting, reliving painful memories, high blood pressure, dilated pupils, hallucinations, meeting the machine elves, reliving past life memories, vomiting, slight dizziness, feelings of hypersensitivity, seeing that all of reality is actually one large serpent, feeling the world too intensely, and diarrhea. Ayahuasca toothpaste. One dose will do ya. Take it from me. It'll make you smile. Ding! Probably. Consult with your doctor before trying this product. Results may vary. Get it where you get your toothpaste. If you're enjoying this episode and want to buy me a coffee or drop some money in my fancy books fund, you can do so on Venmo. Just search at Creative Codex. That's one word on Venmo and it should come up in the businesses area. For each episode of the show, I always use primary sources. You won't find this stuff on Wikipedia. So I usually purchase about four or five books. For example, for this Marina series, I purchased five books totaling over $100. If you'd like to help support my fancy books addiction, feel free to drop a donation on Venmo to Creative Codex. That's at Creative Codex, one word. A link is also in the episode description. Otherwise, if you'd like to become a supporter of the show and receive all kinds of exclusive goodies, head over to my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash m-j-d-o-r-i-a-n. A link for that is also in the episode description. And I thank you kindly in advance for that. Without further ado, back to Marina Abramovich, Immaterial, Part 2. Chapter 3. Art Vital Manifesto. Once Marina arrives in the north of Amsterdam, she moves in with Ulai immediately. In the course of a few months, they go from being two lovebirds in the early throes of infatuation to life partners living and working together. It's an intense shift by any standards. After all, this is the first time that Marina is living with a man in her 29 years. Even though she has a husband back in Belgrade, they didn't live together. Ulai's love life is no less complicated. Despite his estranged wife and son back in Germany, he has a history of fiery love affairs, something Marina would only learn about Ulai gradually, over time. When she arrives at his apartment, with her single change of clothes and a bag full of photographs, she notes how minimalistic it is, but also how the space is filled with personal history. Hundreds of Polaroids hang around the apartment, a series of pictures, recurring portraits of people all with stories to tell. On the kitchen counter, she notices two recent telegrams. One is from her, from Belgrade, which reads, I can't wait until I see you. The other is from a woman named Paula, which reads, I never want to see you again. But their dedication to each other cannot be doubted now. There is no hesitation. They are all in. Marina writes, Some couples buy pots and pans when they move in together. Ulai and I began planning how to make art together. Unquote. The author, James Westcott, in the book When Marina Abramovich Dies, writes about this time, saying, Whatever the objective and transcendent conceptual ambitions of their solo work, 
It had been in essence self-destructive, anguished and unrelentingly dark. Abramovich's violent energy was for the most part focused narcissistically inward when she cut herself, ingested drugs, or pushed herself to the brink of suffocation. Likewise, Ulai's focus was internal, private, and depressive as he took photos of himself as half-woman, half-man, or piercing his bare chest with the pin of a brooch. Now, confronted with a kind of mirror image of themselves, Ulai Abramovich realized that they could channel their formerly destructive energy outward into constructive, relational experiments." Unquote. Marina arrives with the intention to collaborate already in mind. She had recently received an invitation to perform at the upcoming Venice Biennale for a date in the summer. The original invitation was only for her, but she doesn't see why it can't also be extended to Ulai for a collaborative performance. They unfurl a long roll of white paper and tape a 10-foot-long sheet onto the wall of the apartment. Marina writes, On this mega notepad, we began jotting down ideas about the kind of performance we wanted to make. There were phrases, sketches, doodles. In the midst of this process, inspiration struck when somebody gave Ulai, of all things, a Newton's cradle, the same item I'd worked on assembling at the factory in London. He was fascinated by the back-and-forth swinging of the shiny metal balls, the little clack they made when they collided the perfect transfer of energy. What if we did that, he said. I immediately understood what he was talking about, a performance where the two of us would collide and bounce off each other. But obviously we weren't made of metal. There was no way a collision between us would be neat and crisp. And that was a beautiful thing." Unquote. It was settled. Marina and Ulai's first collaboration would be a piece they call Relation in Space. On July 16, 1976, Marina and Ulai arrive at the Venice Biennale. The performance is being held in a derelict warehouse on the island of Giudecca, near Venice. A few hundred people have gathered to watch. Marina and Ulai stand 20 meters apart. Both of them are completely naked. They begin to walk toward each other in a straight line, at a medium pace. At the moment they are about to cross paths, their shoulders brush into one another. The audience hears a thud, a muted sound of flesh. There are microphones placed around the area where Marina and Ulai cross paths, amplifying their sounds throughout the factory space. They walk in opposite directions and turn, being pulled toward each other again. Same action repeats. Their shoulders hit, and they keep walking, like two strangers who have rudely bumped into each other. The action repeats again, and again, for several minutes. Their steps become more deliberate. Their gait increases in force and intent. As they cross paths, their shoulders make contact with a percussive force. Now the impact reverberates through the large factory, like a rubber ball in a handball court. One time, the impact knocks Marina off her forward course. Their naked figures create a striking visual for the audience. Marina is slender, with a unique grace. And Ulai is wiry, but athletic. They both have dark shoulder-length hair that flows behind them majestically as they traverse the space. After a few minutes, they have increased their gait to a trot, the impact is no longer shoulder-to-shoulder, shoulder, but body-to-body, body, creating a clapping sound. No longer walking past each other, with each impact, they turn around and return to their starting point. And then they increase to a jog. Ulai is taller than Marina by a few inches, and likely a few pounds heavier. This results in a slight imbalance of force. After some impacts, you can see Marina take a few more steps back to regain her balance than Ulai. This forceful sound of two bodies clapping together was an intended element of the piece. It provides the piece with this unsettling percussive element. But their nakedness served a second purpose. Marina writes, We wanted to create a work that was as minimalist as possible, and nothing is more minimal than the nude body in an empty space. Our statement for the piece read simply, Two bodies repeatedly pass, touching each other. After gaining a higher speed, they collide. But for another thing, we were in love. We had an intense relationship, and the audience couldn't help sensing this relationship. But of course, there was also much they didn't know about it, much that each audience member projected onto us as we continued to do this performance. Who were we? Why were we colliding? Was there hostility in the collision? Was there love or mercy? Unquote. Thirty minutes pass. Marina and Ulai are now sprinting at each other. Their bodies no longer meet, they collide. In one instance, the force is strong enough to knock Marina backward and to the ground. She lands on her butt, pauses for a half second as Ulai is already turning around, 
like a cog in a machine, and Marina gets up to resume the performance. Marina never breaks the rules of a piece. An American artist named Pat Steer was present at the performance and later commented, It was horrible. Chris Burden hurt himself, but this was two people hurting each other. Marina and Ulai perform Relation in Space for 58 minutes. Their first collaborative work is a success, though they do not leave unscathed. James Westcott writes, Afterward, Ulai was in agony, not from bruises or soreness from the collisions, but from tiny pieces of glass stuck in his feet from running barefoot on the post-industrial floor. His feet swelled up, and for days, he walked around with bandages wrapped around them. He subsequently established a lifelong habit of sweeping the floor of any space before he performed or worked there." Unquote. Basking in the success of their first performance, the two lovers take some time off. They head to a cottage in Gruznyan, a small artist colony in Istria. Marina had bought the cottage a few years ago on credit, using her meager teaching salary. As Marina and Ulai are laying together in bed one morning, they hear keys rattling in the front door downstairs. Marina yells, Oh my God, it's Nessa. She throws on some clothes and races down to meet her husband. Nessa had a spare set of keys for the cottage. Marina writes, We went to a cafe, and after having been with my new love for eight months, I told my husband the truth. We divorced. In a communist country, it was very simple. It was just a matter of going to the notary and signing the two pieces of paper. There was nothing to share, no communal property, not a spoon, not a fork, nothing. Nessa realized I had to go my own way, and in order to go my own way, I had to leave the country. I simply could not be there anymore, and he understood." Unquote. Marina and Ulai return to Amsterdam. They choose to celebrate their joint birthday on November 30th, 1976, with a performance for friends. It occurs in a gallery space. They call it Talking About Similarity. The performance involves Ulai sewing his lips shut with a heavy needle and white thread, and Marina answering questions from the audience as Ulai. It's intended to represent the intangible mental connection which is formed between them. It's also meant as a demonstration of trust for one person to be able to speak for the other. After the performance, they hold a small reception with drinks and food. It's their birthday, after all, but Ulai keeps his lips sewn shut and sips his wine through a straw. His dedication to a concept is as unyielding as Marina's. Marina writes, We'd lived together for a year. We were so close. I just wanted to make love with Ulai all the time. It was a constant physical need. Sometimes I felt I was burning from it. At the same time, there were some things that came between us. Amsterdam itself, for one." Unquote. In the months that follow, Marina begins to realize that the city is holding them back, in a sense. Her ambitions were greater than Belgrade, and they are even greater than Amsterdam. She sees Ulai as content to spend hours in bars with his friends, drinking long into the night, but drugs and alcohol never interested Marina. Some nights she joins him and just sips an espresso. She tries to convince him that there's so much more to their story, so much potential for what they could achieve together with their combined will. Their performances so far are just the beginning. Finally, one day, Ulai taps his fingers down on the table, looks her in the eyes and says, You're right. From then on, he stops drinking. Using some funds from Ulai's Polaroid sponsorship and the Dutch government, they buy a Citroën truck. It's an old used police van with a big sliding door, two rear doors, and a high roof. Ulai paints the van matte black, giving it a utilitarian and slightly sinister look. The Citroën truck is just big enough to fit a mattress, a stove, a typewriter, a filing cabinet, and a box of clothes. This van will be their life for the next three years. They hit the road. Above the driver's seat they write, art is easy. On the back wall, the phrase, the worst is the best. This was more than a road trip. This was a mission to live life as art. They are immaterial artists, and this is the most immaterial life possible. No apartment, no steady jobs, no bills, no boss, and no city. They don't even have a mailbox now, so they ask their friend at De Appel Gallery, where Marina had performed Thomas Lips, to hang a shoebox near the window to receive all their mail. A formality of the material world they will still need, as galleries and museums from around the world reach out to them. Once a week, they call their friend at the gallery and ask them to check the mail. When there is an invitation to perform at a certain gallery or event, they hop in the van and drive. 
This way of living inspires them to write a conceptual manifesto, something which embodies the new ethos which guides their life and art. They write it together one day in the van. Marina calls the manifesto Art Vital. It reads, No fixed living place, permanent movement, direct contact, local relation, self-selection, passing limitations, taking risks, mobile energy, no rehearsal, no predicted end, no repetition, extended vulnerability, exposure to chance, primary reactions. This is an immaterial art manifesto, and it isn't just an intellectual exercise. They live and breathe it. It serves two purposes. For one, it lays out a set of principles for their ensuing performance works. For example, no rehearsal. For their immaterial art, Marina and Ulai believe rehearsal is inauthentic. What happens in a piece should happen spontaneously and without influence on the existing rules of the performance. Then there is the principle, no predicted end. This too is vital to their work, and in each of their performances, they do not plan for a clear endpoint, but rather a loose understanding often defined by the limits of their own bodies during the performance. But just as this art vital manifesto informs their art, it also informs their way of life. Each one of these principles equally applies to their nomadic lifestyle. There is the principle mobile energy, then there is exposure to chance, and no fixed living space, and even the principle permanent movement. At the beginning of 1977, they are invited to the Art Academy in Dusseldorf. There they perform a new piece that builds on a relation in space. They arrive at the gallery without a preconceived idea. Instead, they allow an idea to germinate from the designated space. The gallery they will be performing in includes a wooden wall at its center, which cuts the space in half, hence the title Interruption in Space. Instead of running into each other naked, they each run into the thick wooden wall that divides the space between them. The audience has the full view of both of them and the wall in the center of the room, but Marina and Ulai can only see the wall, a compelling symbol for an obstacle between them. A microphone is positioned inside the wall, which amplifies the sound of their flesh hitting wood. In the documentary, No Predicted End, on looking back at these relational works, Ulai states, our work was based on love and male-female relation, unquote. Next, they drive to Belgrade to perform at the April Gathering of the Student Cultural Center. This is the place Marina had several of her first performances, including Rhythm 5, the one with the burning star, which we covered in the last episode. She returns to her hometown with a degree of notoriety. The artists of Belgrade no doubt admire her ambition, but she has returned in a new form and with a partner. Marina and Ulai perform a piece they call Breathing In, Breathing Out. To prepare for the performance, they stuff their nostrils with cigarette filters to block the air and tape small microphones near their throats. While kneeling, facing each other, Marina exhales all of the air from her lungs, and Ulai inhales all of the air he can. They lock their mouths together, and Ulai blows his air into Marina's mouth. After it fills her lungs, she then blows her air back into Ulai's mouth. They continue this cycle over and over, with their mouths forcefully pressed together, rocking back and forth. The microphones amplify the increasing intensity of their cycled breathing. With each exchange, that one initial lungful of air contains less and less oxygen, and they exchange more and more carbon dioxide. With cigarette filters in their nostrils, this one shared breath is all they have. The performance lasts 19 minutes. There is no more oxygen left, and they stop right before losing consciousness. While in Belgrade, Marina introduces Ulai to her parents. They first meet Danitza at her apartment. The meeting is pleasant enough, but Marina's mother can't seem to reconcile with the fact that Ulai is German. Marina later learns that Danitza told her friends Ulai was Dutch. Next, they meet Marina's father, Voyo, at his home. This turns into a big celebration. Voyo invites the neighbors, and they make a pig roast for the occasion. Marina writes, My father loved Ulai. When he heard that Ulai's father had fought at Stalingrad, it only elevated father and son in his opinion. Voyo totally accepted Ulai. He even gave him a present that night, a pair of binoculars that had belonged to an SS general, probably someone he had killed personally. Ulai and my father bonded, and it was wonderful to see." Unquote. Before leaving Belgrade, 
Marina and Ulai make one final visit to the dog pound. Marina still has no intention of having children, so Ulai thought getting a puppy would be a kind of consolation. They choose an Albanian shepherd named Alba, who is still a little ball of fluff. Alba is a welcome addition to the van, and as they hit the road again, the three of them feel more like a family. An immaterial family, with no roots, traveling from country to country, performing immaterial artwork. In the documentary, No Predicted End, Marina talks about this time period, saying, This period was, looking back, interesting to observe, because we have this huge love affair on one side, and very tough and aggressive work on the other side. This was the happiness of, of tranquility, of absolutely doing what you absolutely love with the man you absolutely love. We had to do this war because it was no choice. It was like a breathing. You don't choose to breathe. You have to because it's stronger than you. Creation is stronger than anything. It's urged to create. It's urged to make things. It's urged to, to, to you know, to see things made and, and have this incredible pleasure of realizing projects. But we, we actually made up, set up this immaterial art in immaterial way of living, you know, no home, no permanent place, always in the movement. It was the best time I ever had. And then Ulai admits this. It might be, and I mean it, it might have been the most beautiful period in my life. In June 1977, they're invited to perform in Bologna, Italy, for International Performance Week. It is destined to be a hotbed of contemporary artists, including Joseph Boys, Nam June Pike, and Laurie Anderson, among many others. They make the drive and arrive 10 days early, on their last drop of gas. They have plenty of time to set up, though. Like in their prior performances, Marina and Ulai plan to first explore the space and create a piece based on the possibilities and limitations it presents. They enter the Galleria Comunale d'Arte Moderna in Bologna, and they ask the museum director if there are any living arrangements for visiting artists. He points them to a janitor's closet. <laughs> yeah, but on the plus side, at least they have a working bathroom. Marina writes, In developing the work, we thought about a simple fact. If there were no artists, there would be no museums. From this idea, we decided to make a poetic gesture. The artists would literally become the door to the museum. Ulai built two tall vertical cases in the museum entrance, making it substantially narrower. Our performance would be to stand in this reduced opening, naked and facing each other, like doorposts or classical caryatids. Thus everyone would have to make a decision as he or she slid by, face the naked man or the naked woman. On the wall of the gallery, we posted an explanatory text. Imponderable. Such imponderable human factors as one's aesthetic sensibility the overriding importance of imponderables determining human conduct." Unquote. It seems this poetic gesture of artists being the entrance to the museum was lost on the museum director, who refused to pay any of the artists in advance. Apparently, this was a common element of dealing with Italian management in those days. Marina writes that they asked for the agreed-upon compensation every day, and every day there was always an excuse. There was a strike, the office manager's cousin was in the hospital, the secretary had just left, or somebody forgot to bring the key for the safe. The agreed-upon payment for their participation was 750,000 lira, at the time the equivalent of about $350. This is a small fortune for them. They could live on that for weeks. The day of the performance arrives, still no payment. They know that if the management promises to send the payment in the mail, it will never arrive. The public is lined up outside, Marina and Ulai are naked. Ulai has had enough. He gets in the elevator, exits on the fourth floor, opens the office door, still fully naked, and demands, where's my money? He is standing in front of the secretary, and she is the only one in the office. Grabbing the keys, which were apparently always there, she stammers up from her desk, opens the safe, and hands him the stack of cash. Finally, the show could go on. Ulai returns to the elevator, still naked, with a stack of Italian banknotes. Now he has a different problem, where to put the money. He reaches in the garbage and grabs a plastic bag and a rubber band, puts the money inside of it, ties it up, and heads for the nearest bathroom. He lifts up the lid of one of the toilet tanks and drops the money inside. 
hopefully, it won't disappear if someone flushes. Returning to the museum entrance, where Marina is waiting, they can go on with the performance. They later find out, to no one's surprise, that none of the artists who performed that week got paid. Next stop, West Germany. With their coin purse a little less empty, Marina, Ulai, and Alba drive to the city of Kassel in West Germany, a picturesque city with scenes of old palaces on green hilltops that look right at home in a Disney film. They are expected to perform at Documenta, one of the most important avant-garde art exhibitions, which is held only once every five years. They make the long drive and arrive both exhausted and excited for the festival. But there is some kind of misunderstanding. They speak to one of the organizers and find out their names are not in the catalog of performers. So they ask to speak with the director of the event. Here is Ulai from the documentary, No Predicted End. Then Manfred Schneckendorfer, uh, the director at the time, uh, he said, well, we will not put you in the catalog. I said, what? That's very important. He said, no, because of Ulai's action, having stolen the, the Spitzweg painting from the museum, I refuse to put him in the catalog. Wow. It turns out, one year ago, Ulai had performed a controversial solo piece which made the front page of the newspapers in Germany. It was meant as a kind of socio-political commentary about Germany's mistreatment of Turkish working-class immigrants, as well as a statement on the subjective nature of perceived value in art. This notorious performance included stealing one of Hitler's favorite paintings, Der Arme Poet, The Poor Poet, by Karl Spitzweg, which hung in the new National Gallery. Ulai scoped out the museum days in advance, making note of the routines and schedules of the staff. Then, on the day of the performance, he distracted the guards with a simple request and cut the security wires from the back of the painting, causing the alarm to blare. Making off with the famous painting under his arm, he ran at full speed to his getaway van, with museum staff making chase close behind him. He drove to the immigrant housing buildings and, once inside, he took down one of the paintings on the wall inside of the apartments and hung up the stolen painting in its place as an artistic statement. He then called the museum to tell them where they could find the painting. Needless to say, the authorities weren't amused with this artistic statement. They took him to court and it was determined he should either pay a fine or go to prison. Ulai chose a third option. He fled Germany. And that's why the director of the Documenta Festival was now telling Marina and Ulai he refused to include them in the event. They leave the building furious and dejected. They need to figure out a plan B. There's no way they're going to miss this opportunity. The entire art world is in town, ready to engage with performance art. If the festival doesn't want them, then they're going to perform without the festival. Marina and Ulai find a gigantic underground garage space nearby, which is directly under a local department store. They meet with the manager of the department store and tell him, we would like to do a performance in the underground garage space under your department store. Could you agree? And to their surprise, he says yes. Okay, the show is on. They have a venue. That turns out to be the easy part. Now they have to craft a performance for the space. They decide it will be another variation of their famous first collaborative performance, Relation in Space. But this time, instead of running toward each other, they will meet with their backs touching, facing away from each other, and run toward two heavy columns. As their bodies smash into their respective columns, the columns will move over, slightly, in a physical drama of mythic proportions. Ulai begins building the columns. He designs them to be four-sided and four meters high, perfectly fitting into the space of the garage and touching the ceiling. Because Marina and Ulai will be running into them, they shouldn't be too easy to move. So Ulai builds each pillar to be twice the weight of the person who will be running into it. For Marina, hers weighs 150 kilograms, or 330 pounds. For Ulai, his column weighs 164 kilograms, or 361 pounds. They are both hollow and attached with an amplification system inside to maximize the collision sound. They call this piece Expansion of Space. Word has spread about Marina and Ulai's planned performance. On the night of, a crowd begins to gather. 
Ulai finally finishes building the installation just minutes before the performance is about to begin. They both take off their clothes and get into position. Marina and Ulai stand naked, with their backs touching in the middle of the space. They both face a floor-to-ceiling column. To the audience, each column appears to be a structural element of the garage itself. At the same moment, Marina and Ulai separate and forcefully walk into the columns. The low thuds echo throughout the parking garage, but the columns have not budged. They step backwards, returning to the touch of each other's back at the center, and separate again, ramming the front of their bodies into the columns. The 300-pound columns have not moved. Marina and Ulai step backwards to the center, reset, gather their strength, and propel their bodies forward. Ulai's column has finally moved an inch as he hits the column with his entire body and face. Marina's column only rattles a little at the top from the force. The audience in the garage is growing larger. People on the street who have just exited the museum enter to watch out of curiosity. This time, Marina's column budges an inch, and Ulai's does not. It seems they may be getting the hang of it. The propulsive force of the body moving forward must not meet the column, but go through it to cause it to move. Ulai lunges face first with conviction. The columns move for both of them. There are hundreds of people now gathering in the parking garage. The massive impact sounds roll out onto the streets and invite the local festival's curiosity seekers. After 20 minutes, they have seemingly done the impossible and moved their 300-pound columns an equal amount, three meters in both directions, almost reaching the stationary columns at both ends, which are part of the concrete support structure of the garage. But now, they seem to have reached an impasse. Neither of their columns have been able to budge an inch for the last three minutes. Perhaps the distance from the ceiling to the floor has narrowed by half an inch, something which was impossible to account for, given the limited time they had to install the performance. The audience seems to realize this. Someone in the audience breaks out in applause, something uncharacteristic for this type of performance. As if to signal to the performers, it's okay, you can stop. There are two things the audience isn't aware of. One, Marina's period started the night before, so she began the performance with some trepidation that the audience might eventually see her blood. And the other thing the audience doesn't realize is that Ulai expended a tremendous amount of physical and mental energy to build these columns in time. Now he is facing this immovable object, smashing his face and body into it without change. Marina's column has also stopped moving. Now three people in the audience start clapping. Over and over again, dozens of times, Marina and Ulai smash into the columns, and nothing moves. They may as well be smashing into a concrete wall. There's an old saying, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Murmurs start in the crowd. What happens if they don't stop? Finally, after one more, Ulai steps backward from the impact, looks at the column, and steps away. Marina doesn't know Ulai has stepped away. As she moves backward and pauses in her usual spot, her back doesn't touch Ulai's as it has for the last 20 minutes. She continues. She is by herself, and the column still hasn't moved. Though without Ulai there, on each reset, she can now move even further back to gather even more momentum. Eventually, she goes as far back as Ulai's own immovable column, giving her enough distance to sprint towards her own. A portion of the audience claps, either in support or in a subtle gesture to encourage her to stop. She doesn't stop. Collision after collision, minutes go by. The column remains unmoved. At one point, something strange happens. An unknown man steps in front of her column, right after she hits it, and is stepping backward. The man faces Marina, extending a broken beer bottle in his hand. Marina doesn't flinch. She resets as usual, gathers her strength, and propels forward. Someone from the audience leaps forward and pushes the man aside. Marina never breaks the rules of a piece. She now looks like a robot stuck in a loop. Yet, it's also such a desperately human endeavor to keep trying something, despite every indication to stop. Without Ulai matching her, Marina's singular attempt at moving the immovable 
and takes on a much more self-destructive tone. The increased momentum results in a concussive impact. And this more violent connotation is not lost on the people watching. The audience bursts out in applause, seemingly in an attempt to signal to her that the performance is over. She can stop now. When it doesn't, and she continues, the crowd breaks out into loud chatter, as if they are debating what to do. What if she never stops? Although this performance is officially by Marina and Ulai, who represent this duality of equal masculine and feminine energy, this moment is all Marina. At her core, she is still Marina Abramovich, the same Marina who has wanted to be an artist since she was six, the Marina who would take a bullet for art, the same Marina who has ambitions of changing the world through performance. And this is her stage, where her legend is made. After ten more collisions, she makes one last running attempt. She steps back from the column, and her body takes a pausing step. It's the first change in her movements from the entire performance, as if her mental faculties have returned to assess the situation. She takes a few steps back to reset, and with her next forward momentum, she walks past the pillar. The audience erupts in applause and support. By the end, Marina and Ulai's expansion of space performance gathers a thousand people, the largest audience they've ever had. They get paid nothing for the event. Yet this is the stuff of legend. You can't plan for it. This is their most successful performance to date. On the next Creative Codex. After three years of living on the road and doing performance art together, Marina and Ulai take their immaterial living in a new direction. They travel to the Australian outback and spend an entire year living with Aborigines. The experience imbues their art with a new meaning and vision. We will also cover their final performance. Marina and Ulai's walk across the Great Wall of China and explore the questions, what led to the end of their relationship and what did their art look like afterward? All this and more on part three of the Marina Abramovich Immaterial series. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You know, there's always more to say, but this time, I'll be brief. If you've been listening to this series since part one, I thank you. If you've been sharing the show with friends, I thank you. If you reviewed the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, I thank you. None of these things go unnoticed. This show would not exist without you. With that, I'd like to also thank my audio editor for this episode, Marisa Ferdenzi. She did an incredible job cleaning up my gaffes and taking me from sounding like Mr. Bean to sounding like David Attenborough. Thank you, Marisa. And now, some shout-outs to my Patreon supporters. First, sending a special handshake in thought to my executive producer in the Dream Maker tier, Mike Hill. Thank you, Mike. Sending big thank yous to my Karma Coma supporters. Adana, Blake Bobbitt, Brian Drury, Crystal82, Cryptic Hubris, Don Frias, Isaac Abizade, Josh Smith, Julio Chavez, Chris with a K, Marav Seren, Misha, Michael Thompson, Miss Alex Kennedy, Mona Oman, Russ Jones, Sam McCohey, Stephen Hunter, Vandan Panchal, Denise Stevens, and Talitha Santana. It's an honor to have your support. Thank you so much. Next, shout outs to my Shadow Fan Plus crew. Aaron Knight, Ben Thurnhofer, Blake Huggins, Brittany Miller, Cerise Walker, Donna Toms-Jones, Frank Warren, Fred, Grain of Sand, Hannah Helton, Helena DeMarzio, James S.Z., Jane Van Elk, Jeremy, Joe Russell, John Bergmans, John Harrington, Karina, Casey Vandenberg, Ken Goodyear, Lane Zong, Libby Hawker, Logan Kshivitsky, Louis Benton, Lyle Vincent, Maria, Marissa, Matt Seibert, 
Michael Gaffrey, Michael Pisano, Nicole Locilento, Nicole Wessel, Nicole Chen, Rebecca Redding, Ryan Huff, Sean Matthew Howard, Steve Struhar, Tyler McKenzie, Hugh July, Louis Cornejo, Ruben Corona, Susan Maggie, Susie Creamcheese, Tom Rubens, Deborah Myers, Nuit Dor, Angela Lau, Daisy Hernandez, Doxy, Haley, Jenna Cooper, Christian Liebler, John Waterlow, Juliette Gray, Kevin Connell, Kirsten Dressler, Lyndon, Owen McCatier, Sarah Tucker, Talia Gallegos Fada, The Celestial Broom, Tom Ney, Essie Q, Michael Hildbold, Zachary C. Hildum, Holly Clark, Sebastian Flores, Kelly McGuire, Ivana Marie Goroiska, Hope Williams, Dana, Courtney Lewis, Melisine Shaw, James Gustafson, Natalie W., Veronica Pescatelli, Caitlin McGrady, Min Yi Chung, Philip Boithelet, John Rayburn, Barrett Riker, Rebecca Sunday, Juliana Cheplick, J. Kent Crowink, Caleb Stevens, and of course, Zuko's World. Thank you so much, guys. I couldn't do this without you. And the thank yous for all you fine Shadow Fam folks are written in the episode description. I appreciate you too. This has been Creative Codex. I am MJ Dorian. Thank you for listening. Until next time, remember, every creative act is an act of courage.